Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, UMass professors protest plans to develop the Bayside Expo Center. Everett officials say the city's director of its gym and wellness center faked her credentials. And will a Vietnamese cultural district be designated in Dorchester? It's our local news roundtable. Later in the show, trade schools are on the rise, and Boston's North Bennett Street School is riding the wave of renewed enthusiasm for professional hands-on training. Now this well-respected North End School is opening a new chapter with a change in leadership. We sit down with both their retiring school president and his successor. But first, joining me in the studio, Jennifer Smith, news editor of the Dorchester Reporter. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, Callie. Gin Dubchis, digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Welcome, Gin. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and Seth Daniel, senior reporter for the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Hi, all. Hey, Callie. All right, I'm going to start off with this Bayside Expo site. Again, you've written a huge piece about it, and we now know that it's going to be sold for $235 million. <laughs> um, our point is that there are some UMass professors who are upset about it, but school officials say this is good news for them because it's all going or most of it's going to go back into the school. Sure. Tell us about what's happening. Sure, and I, I, I co-wrote it with uh, <laughs> Catherine Carlock, our real estate editor, and she was actually at the meeting with Jennifer when this all went down. And uh, basically, this has been one of the most highly sought-after properties in the Boston area because of the location. It's right next to JFK UMass. It is right next to the harbor there. Beautiful spot in parts <laughs> when it's yeah. not when it's not being a parking lot. <laughs> um, so UMass Boston acquired it for $18 million over eight years ago, I want to say. It all feels like kind of a both a blur and a long time. Yeah. And, uh, and now they're leasing it for uh, $235 million. And they hope to use some of the space, but it's going to be, you know, everybody talks about the next Kendall Square. This is one of those properties that is talked about as the next uh, Kendall Square, the next uh, Alston Brighton. And again, it's that, it's that huge potential. Where the professors are upset, it comes down to a lack of trust between the campus and the UMass president's office. There's a lot of factors. The Mount Ida controversy, uh, UMass Boston was very upset about UMass Amherst buying that, and just general distrust. So it's created this kind of toxic environment where even with the UMass officials are saying, look, this $235 million, you know, this is, this is good for UMass Boston there's still that distrust there on the campus. And they're saying, well, you know, show us, show us the money because you're also trying to sell off or lease condos, uh, researchers and students use at the Nantucket Field Station. Mm -hmm. So there's, again, just a lot of distrust. It's a very toxic environment. Yeah, and it should also probably be noted to one of the most recent kind of blow-ups on the campus was over the ultimately shuttered chancellorship search. So there's still kind of a lot of bad blood around that. There have been protests around parking fee hikes. Yeah. So um, I think, as Ginn pointed out correctly, the heart of it is not really so much an objection to the plan in general, because by its very nature, there's not much of a plan because they want to have charrettes. They want to basically chat with the campus community and the surrounding community to actually figure out 
yes, we know this is a waterfront mixed-use thing that's happening, but what does it look like? What are the proportions? They're looking at, you know, 3 million square feet or so, so that's a lot of space. But what the professors that are specifically objecting to it are kind of rooted in is this sort of uneasiness with uh, when the president's office tells them something can they trust it? And remember, uh, Chancellor Catherine Newman, who's an interim chancellor who was appointed after the chancellorship search failed, she was kind of the designated campus voice in this project. And they, of course, also objected to her being automatically appointed to begin with. So there's sort of that uncertainty, too, with our our designated representative is also not someone we chose. So there's that as well. Um, Charette's referring to plans that architects sort of work through as they're considering and conceptualizing the space, just to, for clarity. Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah like yeah. little gathering groups to mm-hmm. basically discuss how mm-hmm. this this visioning happens. And there have been some in the past. There's an existing master plan for the campus. It's not that there's never been any planning there before, but, I mean, it's it's mostly just in terms now of you got to... $200 million project that's going to happen. So hopefully everyone has a voice at that table. Do you blame them, Seth? <laughs> I mean, you know, the whole Mount Ida sale yeah. really was came out of nowhere and left them, as they believe, hanging. And it also yeah. resulted, let's not forget, in all kinds of cuts to the campus programs mm-hmm. and teacher salaries and positions. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. UMass Boston is, yeah. um, I mean, figuring out probably what is it, mm-hmm. what's it going to be, um, I think it's been going through that for quite a while. I have uh, relatives uh, who go there, and you know it's it is a it's a university, but at the same time it has the feel of a commuter college still. You know, my big question when I read this was um, stepping out off the campus was the uh, what are they going to do about K Circle? It's like the worst traffic <laughs> conglomeration built for 1930 uh, that I've seen in all of Greater Boston. It's right up with Sullivan Square in Charlestown. It's like. The same thing. I mean, okay, you're going to have all of that there. The campus is expanding. You've got this whole corridor where they're building stuff. And I've yet to see any kind of plan for that whole Morrissey Boulevard K-Circle mess, which I go through every day, um, that, that really satisfies me. Well, if I recall, that was going to be addressed if we brought in the Olympics, right? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But not just yeah. the Olympics. never is going to be addressed. Yeah. Not okay. just the Olympics, but yeah. also remember the crafts were kind of in right. conversations yeah. to put a stadium there. Actually, to your point, Seth, one of the things that I found incredibly interesting in the proposal that distinguished the winning developers, which is Accordia Partners, from the other finalists, which was Lincoln Properties, is that Accordia said they were going to put $25 million into kind of infrastructure. And uh, I asked them at the at the press conference, what does that look like? What yeah. does that mean? And they, they're they basically treating it as kind of the potential to start a pool of money, which they hope will also include state funds and also maybe include funds from the other developments that are happening in the area right along that mm-hmm. corridor so that maybe you might have enough money and uh, and kind of willpower and also... As you mentioned, if you drop a bunch of new housing and retail sure. and stuff, just kind of impetus to address K-Circle and to address uh, JFK UMass. And maybe this could be the start of actually having the finances to do that. So mm. it's interesting that they did note that in their in their proposal. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are local journalist Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. You just heard her. Gin Dumchess of the Boston Business Journal and Seth Daniel of the Independent News Group. And we're discussing discussing all the greater Boston news you may have missed. I just want to point out that all of these plans 
if they all come to fruition, nothing's happening or will be done. Some Both of you all are saying by 10 years, maybe at the earliest, we'll see this. So there's still a lot for whomever has to still go on the campus and teach and, and, and exist as a student to live through while all of this is going on. Yeah, they yeah. were saying it was, what, a year and a half, best case scenario, before they could get a shovel in the ground because there was a lot of question over what happens with regard to the spot now. It's basically being used as spillover parking mm-hmm. for the for the students uh, while they finish up kind of fixing the substructure uh, on the campus. But yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're thinking about Morrissey Boulevard, I mean, that is, <laughs> I love it. Seth's just like, oh no. Um, yeah. But like best case scenario, you're looking at 10 years on that. No no kidding. Oh, yeah. But can yeah. they get the money? So, so the sale happens. Can they at least start using the money before it's all done? So I, I'm I'm not mm. entirely clear on that. I, I mm. do I do think it is uh, it's worth noting that you know the real estate market that we're in right now may not be the same market yeah. in a couple of years as this <laughs> How gets about underway. Next week? <laughs> that, 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 right. So I mean we could I, I mean that's the thing everybody everybody's talking about a recession. Yeah. Everybody's kind of like looking at the yeah. numbers, saying maybe maybe not. But to get 235 million for this property, you know I had been hearing a couple months ago that it'd be closer to 200 million. That's huge. And then a couple of years from now, that might not be possible. Right. And what does that mean if if they're trying to build something? How far along are they going to get before the uh, recession hits? Yeah, it was 192 mm. guaranteed, I believe. So it's yeah. if, for instance, UMass Boston decides not to like lease back space on it for student programming or something like that, then uh, the conditions of the actual agreement are you still have to give the campus 192 million, okay. but it can go up to 235. And, and the unhappy professors, what they want is is they they want to use some of that money or a good chunk of that money to pay down the campus debt. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and they because, got a lot. And they do, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it a lot of it is from when the campus was first constructed. Yeah. There was a lot of corruption. Um, I think John Keller's called it the godfather of the big dig. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things where, where it's uh, the garage is falling apart. I've, yeah. I've gone through those buildings. They were in rough shape even, even when I was uh, attending uh, 15 years ago. You know, where's this money going to go? Exactly how it's going to get doled out? I think that's what's of greatest interest to uh, the campus leaders. And Which means there's that not we'll, a lot of certainty. Right. Yeah. We'll be right here around this table talking about it shortly again i'm sure <laughs> yeah i don't think this one's going yes. anywhere <laughs> all right moving on speaking of real estate and development in dorchester jennifer dorchester not for sale the people coming out really trying to hang on to that community and be pay very careful attention to projects that are continuing being planned in a once again, it's a ripe area for development. Yeah, it's uh, this is a group that formed uh, a little more than a year ago around the formation of the uh, latest planning study that the city rolled out for Glover's Corner. And for people that are basically trying to figure this out by where is it on the T-stop, it's pretty much between Fields Corner and Savin Hill. It's along the stretch of Dorchester Avenue. And it's kind of largely industrial area, so they've been trying to basically have meetings with the community to figure out what to do with it. So this Dorchester Not For Sale group is an anti-displacement, pro-affordable housing group that's been pretty vocal, but they recently got their first crack at a pretty big project right in the middle of that area, which is called Dot Block, which is now uh, owned by the billionaire Gerald Chan, um, whereas before it was under previous ownership and some earlier versions of it. And they've switched up some of the actual designs of it, so they are moving an entire 
entire parking structure now underground. So you won't have like a five story parking well, structure in the middle of it. So aesthetically, people are happy mm. about this. But the trade off for it is they say, look, now we've got room for more units. So they're proposing uh, bringing it up to like 488 units now. Um, and instead of a supermarket, they want to aim toward um, what they're calling neighborhood retail. So there's a little bit of trepidation in the neighborhood around what some people see as kind of a bait and switch, but it did also literally change ownership. So the current team wasn't involved in the earlier promises that were made for it. But yes, this Dorchester not for sale group, their stance is basically that 66 units of affordable housing in a 488 unit project is not enough, uh, even though technically it's a little bit more than the city requires and they're offering it at a deeper subsidy than the city requires. Um, But the affordable housing groups Mm -hmm. are saying we need more than that. And they're not wrong. Um, I'm glad to see, because you, your story points out that 150 people were in this public meeting, and I'm yeah, glad to see that people 200. are staying on top of this, because that's the only way that, you know, any of this gets heard, because this development is just taken over, as we can see, or I feel like it is anyway. <laughs> um, that's just my personal little comment. Over in your bailiwick, uh, Seth, speaking of housing, mm-hmm. so nuns, sure. whose order is based in Connecticut. Berlin, Connecticut, <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> But own a building in Boston, one yeah. of the few remaining single single occupancy buildings, mm-hmm. are now kicking out the elderly tenants to do something else. Yeah, this is a really strange story. Um, you know, single room occupancy, SROs, um, used to be the norm in Fenway, South End especially. Um, it, was, it was where everybody went, you know, to get cheap housing. And, uh, you know, shared bathrooms is, and shared kitchens is the, um, what you find in there. So this, this was a hotel. It got donated to the Catholic Church, who then um, passed it to this order of nuns. And they, their mission was to provide affordable housing, single-room occupancy, mostly for, for women, um, but students as well. And this has gone back to the 40s. So it's, there's people who have been in there for decades. And, you know, it's what we were just talking about, the pressures of housing and the pressures of the old style of housing that probably isn't as... Um, you know, lucrative, and and they're they have evicted most of these ladies. Where will uh, they go? Well, that's what that's a great question. One of the ladies can't find anywhere. I think you know it's like most people they getting uh, where before people would flee to the suburbs. Now people getting pushed to the suburbs, and mm-hmm. that's kind of where uh, they're finding themselves. I think one lady went to the South Shore. There are no like senior citizen buildings. Basically, there are none of those. There are waiting lists a mile along for those, and yeah, they're finding places further and further out. Uh, most people, especially the elderly in single-room occupancies, don't have cars. So when they get pushed further out, they're, they're stranded. They're really mm-hmm. isolated. So there's really nowhere for them to go. Um, the aim, I believe, for this building was for Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Now they kind of got cut off on that because they can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so now they're probably going to be looking to students or, you know, the, the typical Fenway thing where you get a very small apartment, a kitchen, and a closet, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you pay a lot of money for it. Right. And, and, and the but el- it's location, location. Yeah, the elderly mm-hmm. aren't going to do that, um, right. and they can't do that, and especially the women here. So the idea is that it's, it's like, you know, the mission of this place was pretty specific. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to get to. Still, the people who own it still have that mission, but the people who manage it might have a different idea. And uh, uh, many in the Fenway believe that the nuns don't know. 
<laughs> this is happening. Well, can somebody tell them? And, and, well, and, that's uh, where this story gets good. And yeah. the, the community has really risen up. Um, mm -hmm. The Fenway community is, um, it's, it's hard because there's a lot of pass-through, there's a lot mm -hmm. of students. But there is a core, and, and that core has really risen up to support these women, to support this, this cause, and to let the nuns know, hey, you know what's happening here? And they have, they have made phone calls, sent petitions. Um, it's become a real, a real cause. I mean, it's gone to court. Um, you know, I don't know what the end result is going to be, but they do have political will on their side. Um, some of the new state reps over there have, have jumped in. But can they counselors. stay there while all this is being worked out, or do they have no, to get out? No, a lot See, of them have left. Yeah, right? A lot of them yeah. have had to yeah. leave. Yeah. Property owner says, we were very clear about it. You know, not the owner, but the manager. We're very clear about it. And they're violating their leases, you know, so. Meaning they're very clear that they had to get out? You yeah. Mean, yeah. Yeah, that okay. this was changing. And they okay. gave them time. They gave them the state-mandated time. What's but, the state-mandated, what, two weeks? I mean, I, I have think not. It's a year. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, I if mean, you're disabled, it might yeah. be, or blind, it might okay. be two years. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, this is an issue all over the place. I mean, it's just that there aren't a lot of SROs left in the city. Well, there aren't a lot of nuns owning the building. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> let's just get to that. I mean, yeah. this is something that I expected us to talk about with regard to other kind of ownership or management. Sure. The headline should not be nuns, bad landlords. That's just yeah. not what well, I'm thinking you know, happens. This, this is probably not that <laughs> uncommon. Know. I don't know about nuns, but maybe the church. I mean, this has <laughs> happened a lot of times where they've had, you know, prime real estate and, and they've sold it and uh, it ends up that, you know, people get displaced because of that. Um, you know, they have a lot of debt to pay. Mm. That's my guest, Seth Daniels of the Independent <laughs> News Group. This is this that one really got me. Yeah. Here's another one. In Everett, mm -hmm. uh, the director of the city-run gym and wellness center yeah. completely faked her credentials. It looks like that. Yeah. Yeah. Looks it is like that. it. It is. <laughs> that. <laughs> well, my I mean, um, she, she's a, a very nice woman, very capable. She didn't need the credentials to run it. The wellness center there, it's it's renowned. It's got an award from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So God, obviously she's thousands talented. of people use it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but it, it came down somehow someone found out and passed on information, which is a whole other story, um, <laughs> wow. about um, the fact that she, her credentials might not be real. And, and to be clear, she she's forged a registered dietitian certificate. Mm -hmm. And at some point on a TV show years ago, she claimed to be a pediatrician from BU Medical School. Yes. And, and she also had said she had a master's in nutrition from Tufts, which wasn't true either. Okay, but obviously she must have some skills. She's been running this thing yeah. and getting awards. Yeah, I think but, she's, she's got a business. She's yeah. been a personal trainer. I yeah. think she kind of knows right. a little bit about it. But um, for whatever reason, um, she she had faked these credentials. And it brings up a bigger conversation, yes. you know, these small cities like that aren't Boston with a dedicated human resources division um, or Cambridge, you know, bigger places. You know, they, they're not going to run down and check every degree, you know, and they don't have the staffing to do it. But now they're presented with this and they're like, geez, maybe we do have to do this. I hate to ask this question, but mm -hmm. did they Google? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I mean, she's just from Allie, Allie asking the hard questions there. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a fair question. Here's where, here's where, here's where the story again gets interesting. For. And yeah. that is the fact that in the days now of, of internet and even really nice printers at home, yeah. <laughs> oh. you know, so the laser printers, it yeah. it's easy because after a while you can build up this idea that you have this degree or you have this credential and it, you've created a line that goes way back on wow. your digital footprint that says you have this. And yeah, they Google it. Yeah, she has it. But did anyone call Tufts? Well, I did. <laughs> wow. Uh, and No. Um, wow. Doesn't look like it. But that's also that's that. I mean, wow. you're you're trained, trust but verify, right? Yeah, and I, th that's I think true. that's even in this day and age, it shows that uh, I, I would imagine this was probably even more prevalent 
before the days of the internet, uh, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people would say like, oh yeah, I have this kind of degree or whatever. So, but it still shows that people, you know, if your mother says she yeah. loves you, check it out. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's also in, in municipal government, um, basically, there was, it was a lot smaller in those days. They, I think they did check people's credentials. There weren't as many positions. I mean, municipal government has expanded dramatically. And we're talking about a city-run fitness center, right? That never existed. It doesn't exist in most places still. Hmm. So the job of hiring, the people who are hiring and checking it all out has grown so much that they can't possibly run it all down. I mean, there well, might... I would also just raise this. Oh, I'm sorry, Jennifer. You gotta let you well, said, uh, yeah, I was just quickly hmm. going to say, I wonder, too, how much of it as well is just the the area in mm-hmm. which we're operating here, where it's kind of, you know, she was ostensibly planning on. Uh, managing people's health like Mm. it was it kind of feels like an altruistic sort of calling Mm -hmm. so it feels like a very strange thing to fake too it's not like you know you're forging credentials to get into like a high-paying finance job it's saying i would like to Mm -hmm. you know oversee people's people's wellness so i guess that also might have not triggered anything in the back of people's heads except wellness is a huge lucrative business now now. oh yeah 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 yeah. and i would just raise that you know often in these small situations where people know somebody who knows somebody then nobody checks Mm -hmm. you know it's you get to a certain circle and then that's just assumed because you know i think so-and-so knows her i mean if it's if it's your brother's best friend are you gonna offend them by saying can i see that or or (laughs) even your cousin sorority sister I'm just yeah, saying, it can yeah. get like that. And that and that is a problem because it also, on the other end, keeps other people from being able to apply for these jobs because they can't get inside that circle. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just, just that, on like, that. quiet yeah. network before exactly. anything actually comes out into, like, a public job offer. It's just like, exactly. hey, you know, I know my, my neighbor's cousin. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with local journalist Jennifer Smith, Gen Dumptious, and Seth Daniel for our local news roundtable. Quincy Mayer is... Big winner. Talk about a big winner again. <laughs> he is. My, my hometown right there. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, so so Quincy, Quincy has been growing for, for a while now, and a lot of that uh, is in large part due to four red line stations, got a commuter rail station. It's kind of funny to believe that, that neighborhood neighborhoods at one point opposed those train stations. Wow. They're but very busy. They're very, very busy. Yeah. They're packed. Yeah. And part of that has been over a billion dollars poured into this revitalization of Quincy Center. Now, I remember growing up in Quincy Center, going to the local comic book store. Um, sketchy area. Very, you know. <laughs> okay. And that was before cell phones and was in there with the CD so crowd. I, well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Some say still, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, still, I still go to that comic book store. So, um, and, and uh, so the the, city, the city's been working hard to revitalize that area, and part of that has been uh, a parking lot behind, a couple of blocks away from City Hall. And what's coming to that parking lot now uh, that got announced recently is uh, a 200,000-square-foot medical center that South Shore Health, uh, which, which uh, runs the hospital, uh, and Brigham uh, Health, they're collaborating on creating, um, I, I guess I shouldn't say a, a hospital so much as a medical center, uh, outpatient care. Um, they're also going to have a primary care office there. And I think, you know, they wouldn't be doing this if they didn't see a market for that. Um, and I think uh, Quincy uh, is, is booming in population, but it's also diverse population. There's a, there's a huge Asian population there, uh, and they need health care. There's a, a Latino population that's growing there. Quincy is diversifying. Um, so they're seeing a market, and they are, they, they are moving. They're, they're going to be building this building. There can be a line drawn here. Uh, a couple of years ago, Quincy, Quincy Hospital closed down. Uh, I used to live uh, behind it, and um, that was a huge shock. 
to the community. Um, the the neighborhood was called Hospital Hill. Wow. There is now no longer a hospital in Hospital Hill. Uh, but as part of the, the moves here, Quincy was like, no, we're still going to have some sort of medical office here uh, in, the, in the area. And, and this has been part of the agreement. The developer uh, that is working with this is also working to develop the former Quincy Hospital space, and they're bringing condos and, and housing there because Quincy, Quincy desperately needs housing. I got priced out, so I can, I can verify they need <laughs> okay. housing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this, this is a big deal for Quincy Mayor uh, Tom, Tom Koch. He's, uh, I believe, wrapping up, uh, uh, you know, his, his first full four years um as as mayor and um you know i i think if i think if you asked him he he is both happy and sad because he told commonwealth magazine his oldest son has also gotten priced out of the, wow. the city so um obviously great for him um f- uh, as as a mayor but also you know tr- troubling from from the sense of like the the people who grew up there can't afford to to live there i think it also says to me something about vision because you know he's had a vision as have others that this area could accommodate many other uh, growth patterns. And sometimes people look at areas, as you said, um, and just say, mm, not so much. And and he's literally changed the whole reputation of the, of the town and the area by bringing in this kind of interesting development. Yeah, he's made it more pedestrian friendly. Yeah. If you if you go down there now, it's it's the the there's the Church of of Presidents where uh, John Adams and John Quincy Adams and their wives are buried. It's become this like beautiful park. Uh, I know in the winter right now it doesn't look that great, but <laughs> yeah. you know when the spring and fall is going to come, um, it's it's going to be beautiful. And you, and then you know in a couple of years you're going to have a medical uh, medical building down there, more people, more foot traffic, all all positive stuff for for the city. Oh, well, very good. Um, moving over to you, Jennifer. Um, Mayor Walsh has been behind the effort to designate Fields Corner as a Vietnamese cultural district. Yeah, he's and, kind of dropped on board. Right. I think people seem to be interested in it. Maybe it's the name of it, the proposed name that's giving people a little anjana. Yeah. So for <laughs> some some background, uh, the largest uh, Vietnamese diaspora in the state is actually in Dorchester, specifically in Fields Corner. So um, even though the area itself isn't a majority of any specific ethnic group, it's about 40 percent Asian. So it's a it's a pretty substantial chunk there. And the proposed name for this cultural district, which is a Massachusetts Cultural Council designation, um, so it's an overlay. It's not that they'd be changing the name of Fields Corner, but they would be adding signage and stuff like that um, for what the Vietnamese community hopes would be known as Little Saigon. And the kind of pushback that they've been getting from local residents, uh, like other local residents, is that they feel that uh, choosing a cultural district with a specific uh, ethnic name to it is ostracizing or exclusionary to those who don't fall into that group. And there's only one or two other uh, cultural districts in the entire state that also have some kind of ethnic uh, distinction to them, one of them being the Latin Quarter in Mm. Jamaica Plain. Mm -hmm. But you know, more often we see like the literary district downtown or a district that's named after like a clock tower that that's in the middle of a district mm-hmm. or something. So it's it is something that the Vietnamese community in the in the area feels should be necessary because after a lot of them came here after the Vietnam War, they very much kind of revitalized the area. There had been still some white flight. There was a little bit of uncertainty about sort of the the future of the area. One of the first articles I ever wrote for the reporter was talking to a woman that has lived in Fields Corner, an Irish woman, through multiple generations. And she talked about how for a while, 
all the families left. And it was just this kind of industrial area. And then the Vietnamese families moved in and suddenly there were kids out there again and it really revitalized the area. So they're looking for this cultural designation to kind of recognize the contributions that the Vietnamese have made to that community. And uh, interestingly, at the Tet in Boston celebration, which celebrates the new year, um, their new year, uh, Mayor Walsh actually indicated that he would like to see this move forward. So he said that he wants to start a task force in coordination with uh, the state to see how you can best proceed with this. There's been a little bit of uh, concern about the uh, the phrasing that he used, which is like, we don't need to have a conversation about this. They've done a lot for the area. We should figure out how to move forward with this. Um, when, as City Councilor Andrea Campbell points out, uh, even in areas where there's some support for it, if you go to like a Friends of the Fields Corner Library event and this comes up, a lot of people in the neighborhood still don't know that this mm. is a proposal. Mm. So they're saying there does need to be conversation about it at the very least so everyone knows why signage might suddenly appear in their neighborhood. Mm. Well, I, I think those banners are already up. Yeah. So, mm. uh, so <laughs> a lot of, yeah, yeah there. exactly. Yeah. So and they've been kicking this around for a few years. It was a little bit controversial because uh, when they were looking at areas to add to uh, Boston's cultural district landscape, they also floated a little Haiti for Mattapan, mm. which also kind of rubbed people the wrong way. Um, again, sort of the idea of of uh, solidifying enclaves makes some folks nervous. Mm. But how many cultural districts do we have in the greater Boston area, just to be clear? A few, a dozen or so. It's mm -hmm. a handful of them. Um, they're, they're kind of spread, obviously, throughout the, throughout the state, but you may not even necessarily know you're in a cultural district. Mm. It's it's kind of you've got to be looking at the signage. The The logic behind them is that you go to the area because it's a cultural district. Uh, this okay. is the case for right. it. It's like you want to go to Little Saigon, go have some great Vietnamese food, look around. And then also while you're there, like also patronize the, you know, Irish restaurants mm -hmm. that are there and mm -hmm. also go to the other local businesses. So the idea is that they're not... Um, kind of superseding the existing group of identities and the group of businesses, but just adding an additional... Just because we're enhancing yeah, Exactly. So that's the, the argument, but it's not been uncontroversial. Right. There, there's a huge mural. I've done a story about there that... Um, done by a Vietnamese artist there. Yeah. Um, to, Tren Vu. She's, yeah, exactly. she's lovely. Yeah. Yes, and um, some great restaurants. So it all is a, a piece of this. And I know there had been an effort to get Roxbury designated as a cultural district, right. too. So do you get extra something from the city or state money? Do you all know? Uh, you get some resources. Yeah. Um, the Cultural Council gives yeah. you some resources. Massachusetts Cultural Council or the Boston Cultural Council. All right. Yeah. So They help is, out with like some programming <laughs> right. and mm -hmm. signage and that sort of thing. You pay it's, for a band or a yeah. festival. All right, yeah. so Exactly. It's, not a, it's not a small thing then. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I'll be interested to see, you know, what happens with this. Um, uh, Seth, over to you. Mm -hmm. um, once again, where people are mad. Eastie is mad. <laughs> oh, Eastie's always been mad. <laughs> Eastie's mad because they were promised yeah. uh, something and they're not getting it. Yeah. Yeah. East, Eastie and Revere, too. I mean, mm -hmm. any, any of the North Shore Blue Line communities, which basically Eastie and Revere. Um, yeah, the, the red, red line, blue line connector. Um, it's the only two trains in the system that don't connect. And, and it's, um, it was promised as part of the big dig mitigation. It's very important. If you're, if you're coming from Revere or East Boston, if you could connect to the red line, you know, you can access Kindle Square, um, great. you know, MGH for appointments, mm -hmm. but you can't do that now without getting out and paying again to go back in. It's in walking. It's, um, 
it, it's, it's been a long battle. And the state took it out of mitigation, uh, I think it was in 2010, say it was too expensive, it really made people angry. It was the right behind the airport, which is always a yes. very, very fun thing to debate in East Boston. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hear planes yeah. are loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, our, our East Boston reporter, John Lenz, um, was on this because the new Focus 40 plan by the state um, Department of Transportation says that they're going to do a pedestrian walkway instead of a connection. Mm-hmm. So like an underground walkway. That solves the problem of not having to get out and then pay again, but it's also a long walkway. And people were promised a direct connection. Um, the state like has, how long? Like a mile? What are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> I think it's what, um, 1,500, 1,600 feet? They're going to put um, like a coffee stand in the middle of yard. it so yeah. people can refuel on their uh, way between people, the trains. People probably not. Yeah. There'll probably be a you know, wow. busker in there playing. Kitar <laughs> 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 Bear's new home. Kitar Bear, yeah. That'll, that'll make it. So what happy. can change this? Anything? Or are they just well, going to be fighting, mad Yeah, the state, yeah. The state yeah. Um, delegation is fighting this. I mean, this is a promise that was made a long, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and they want it. They, you know, the state says, oh, it could be $700 million. You know, now it's down to it could be three hundred million dollars, and and they said, you know, you've got to follow through on it. This is a very important connection, especially now. You know, accessing Absolutely. jobs yeah. in, in Cambridge and Kendall Square, um, appointments for the elderly. It's almost impossible to get in uh, to MGH and stuff like that. Um, well, I was thinking think the airport section mm-hmm. too. I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, I so I come from the south, right? Mm-hmm. I get on the red line, and and if I get off at South Station, exactly. I, have, I have to take the silver line, but silver the silver line. line gets stuck in traffic. Sure. So all the time. All the time. So so for me, it's easier just to go to Downtown Crossing, and then I get out, I go to State, or I mm-hmm. make some sort of exactly. switch. Exactly. And, and it would be so much easier. Yeah. It God. makes it would be. I mean, it's a big payoff. I mean, it's clear. It to, is. And I'm blaming. Well, I hope they stay mad and maybe it gets changed this time. Yeah, yeah I, I think <laughs> they're on the right track. I yeah. don't think they're going to let them get away. Yeah. With well, them. activists often have kind of had to hold the state's feet to the fire as far as big dig mitigation. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the one that springs to mind in in my neck of the woods is uh, the Fairmount Line stations All that right. were required. Yeah, that's right. Where you're going to have actually like this month, the the latest one at Blue Hill Ave is actually going to be fully operational. So Mattapan can now use the commuter rail. Well. That's a good note um, to end on. <laughs> I thank you all for joining me. Thanks, Thanks Callie. Thank you, Jennifer Smith is the news editor of the Dorchester Reporter. Gen Dupchus is a digital editor at Boston Business Journal. And Seth Daniel, senior reporter with the Independent News Group. Coming up, at a time when many students are not sure college is the best option, trade schools offer an alternative path to top careers. And in a world where services are increasingly automated and things made disposable, there is a renewed appreciation for artisan and handmade goods. All of this is great news for Boston's North Bennett Street School, which has been offering crafts and trade training to students for almost 140 years. The school is now entering its latest era under the leadership of a new president. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. If you know anything about me, it's that I love to cook. Hand in hand with that, I am an avid cookbook collector. Almost 90 volumes occupy the shelf space in my kitchen. However, there are a couple I always come back to. So that was given to me by um, my mother's friend 
when we lived in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Okay. So I had never, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. I had never seen snow or anything else. My mother decided to get her master's in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Why? Because she did not want her black children thinking that their world was so narrow. And she decided to have extra adventure, let's live in a trailer park. So we lived in a trailer park and the nice lady and her family had this cookbook and she saw that I was, I was in the sixth grade and I was interested. So we cooked things out of it and then she gave me that book. And I've had it for a long time. And as you can see, I've used it a long time. And it's just, I'm starting to get a little teary. As is true for most well-loved things, the decades of continued use and reference have left their mark. So recently, I paid a visit to Boston's North Bennett Street School's bookbinding department, headed by Jeff Altpeter, to have these sentimental treasures rebinded. Cookbooks are one of the most interesting things, the most obvious things, I guess, when it comes to maintaining the original material and not overdoing it on repairing it because the evidence of use is part of what makes it special. special. I mean, that 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 really is the one that you used. I mean, people often, you know, bring me something and there'll be there'll be a couple that are very stained and everything. We don't want to overclean it because we sort of want to know that that was, you know, that was grandma's go-to recipe or something, you know. So it's really, uh, that, that evidence is really fascinating to kind of maintain in a book like that. That is absolutely a fixture of the North End since 1881, the private trade school was originally founded to teach new immigrants employable skills. But over the years, it has evolved continuously and gained stature in the field of vocational education. This past December, North Bennett opened a new chapter, naming experienced crafts educator Sarah Turner as president. She will continue the expansion and outreach which characterized the tenure of retiring President Miguel Gomez Ibanez. The former architect and furniture designer retired in December after 12 years at the helm of North Bennett. I sat down with them at North Bennett Street's new location in the North End to discuss Miguel's legacy and the school's next steps under Sarah's leadership. I'm excited to be at North Bennett because, uh, Miguel, you and I talked uh, years ago, um, and you were in the, th- in the throes of expanding uh, the vision here at North Bennett. Just give a little history of what's happened under your 12 years. Well, uh, I started here in 2006, and uh, at that time, my first thought was to expand our, in, our relationships with the Boston community. I mean, we had started out 137 years ago as a neighborhood organization, and then we became a kind of an international school of craft, but we never, we sort of skipped a beat and never really connected with the city of Boston. So that was my first uh, order of business, was to reach out to Harvard and Simmons and the city and the public schools and all to to make them aware of what we were doing and start to make connections between our programs and theirs. And uh, Sarah, for those who do not know what North Bennett offers, describe the nine programs you have going on here. Sure. So I think of the nine programs broadly as fine trades and crafts. And so if I walk my way through the building, we have a locksmithing program, and that's a very contemporary program, thinking about the contemporary need for locks and locksmiths and security technology. Then we have a cabinetry and furniture program. We have a jewelry making program, and that um, creates people who are very, very skilled to be bench jewelers, fine jewelers. We have a violin making program, one of our longest, that's training people to make instruments themselves. We have a preservation carpentry program. We also have um, 
let's see, I'm walking through the building. We have a piano tuning, piano technology program, and a second year that goes on to advanced piano, so rebuilding pianos. And I think that was You're nine. doing better than I do. Whenever <laughs> I'm in this position, I can't count to eight. <laughs> Um, I think the point is that a lot of people will be um, surprised about the variety and the breadth and depth of what's happening here. That's right. And mm. so I realize, as I mentioned, I forgot to mention our carpentry program. Mm. And it's a good example of programs that we think of as sort of general market, carpentry, locksmithing, maybe even jewelry, and then very, very specialized programs around preservation carpentry, violin making, cabinetry and furniture, ones that really tap into the intelligence of, of history, of culture, of preserving those things as a part of what we do. So... This is uh, North Bennett's contribution to the community, um, really, I think, is to raise the stature of trade school education. Um, I think for a long time, particularly in this town, in greater Boston, where we have 30 colleges and universities, the push has been four-year college, four-year college, four-year college. It's just really been recently that there's even been more interest in community colleges. But a lot of conversation has been happening, particularly, I would say, during your tenure, Miguel, about rethinking vocational education and trade school education as not just viable, but a real part of the educational spectrum. I wonder if yeah. you'd speak to that. Well, you know, my bias, of course, is that there's tremendous uh, uh, self-actualization and, and just a lot of... Uh, it's wonderful to be in the trades. But beyond that, I think one of the issues that you're, you're referring to is that we kind of got into that uh, area where the cost of a college and a four-year degree was becoming onerous and the benefit of it, if you graduate with, with a lot of debt, became questionable and even more questionable if you went for two or three years and then had to drop out and so you ended up without a degree and with debt. So I think that attraction of vocational training, it's much less expensive, it takes less time, investment, and you, you get a real job at the end, or you're really training for a specific job. If that's a job that you really want and love, then it's the best of any possible world. Well, it's actually more than getting a real job. There is a crying need. People are out here, <laughs> practically flagging people down trying to find skills craftsmen. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a vacuum. That's right. Mm -hmm. I think the U.S. Department of Education reports that over the next five years, about 68% of the jobs in the trades will go unfilled. And there's a whole generation of folks who are working in those areas that are retiring. So there's a real need for those to be filled by the next generation. And as Miguel says, it's a really viable and rewarding way to make a living, to build a life. And it gives you a sense of, of authorship over your own life when you start to go into the trade. So um, it's good for the person. And as we're learning, it's really, really good for the community because the community needs folks to be doing those jobs right now. Um, yes. And a lot of schools really aren't, uh, there's no place for people to learn these skills unless they come to trade school. I want to talk about a shift in mindset though, Miguel. That's something that you've seen since you've been here. Um, and Sarah, now you, you, you see it now too. And that is when you came, um, you I read that you said you didn't think of yourself initially as a person who wouldn't have gone to kind of a traditional college. And then 
you became a maker yourself, right. and it was a whole <clears throat> transformation. Talk to me about that. Well, I started out as you know, I you know, I grew up in a in a family of academics. My father was a college professor. It never once was even a possibility, not even discussed, that I would not go to college or would not be a white collar worker. So I had to pick among those things. I went into the Navy and I was a carpenter in the Navy. So I landed with architecture and I was an architect because that was acceptable. Then I uh, became disillusioned, really, with my life as a white-collar person making phone calls all day. Uh, so I decided to go to North Bennett Street School, originally as a, as a hiatus, just as, a, as an escape. And as soon as I got here, I realized there's another world out there. You don't have to make phone calls and write emails all day. And, and what I got coming home at the end of the day was something that I never got coming home at the end of the day as an architect. And that is a sense that... I did what I had to do that day, I accomplished it, and I'm home and I can be with my family or think of other things. It was just like a, a opening a door to a world that you didn't actually think existed. You, you, you assume you're going to come home with stress and carry it over till the next day, and that's life as an educated person. And, and in your case, building and making furniture, you're coming home to something, you're making something beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the worst day in the world, you, you try to make the leg for the table and it, and it comes out wrong. So you go in the next day and do it again. You know, that's, that's the horrible downside. What's, how bad can, it, can yeah. that be? <laughs> so, um, Sarah, we're seeing now, um, I think, uh, a, a removal of the kind of stigma that used to be attached uh, in, in some people's minds about working with your hands. Um, what have you seen? I mean, you came from a school, uh, Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan, where, you know, fine uh, uh, craft was appreciated. But outside of those walls, what are we seeing now from both the public and other folks who may be considering this as a career? Yeah, I mean, I think overall we're seeing a whole generation that really is returning to things made by hand. So you think about sort of the slow food movement, and you think about people who are returning to ideas around urban farming, wanting to connect to the earth. You see the rise of small makers, people who are doing um, small lines of product and really using the internet to engage audience. And so I think there's just a yearning these days for things made by hand and for people who are working in digital environments and online environments to wanting to connect themselves with making something by your by their hands and like Miguel, you know, I have a crafts background myself, and I was trained in metalsmithing and jewelry. And for me, that really gave me capabilities. It gave me an awareness of how things are made, how things are built. And that's just translated into knowledge about the world that's been so valuable to me as a person, as an educator, as a leader. So um, I think people are craving that, craving that kind of tangible connection. And when they can also do that as a way to make a living, it just aligns things for folks. I can't believe you brought up the, the, the slow food movement because the farm to table, I really believe, has made everybody appreciate where stuff comes from and how it gets made. I mean, the farmers, we, we, we need to appreciate them for having changed a mindset, I believe. Uh, I mean, how all of the, in, in many other arenas, not just in farming, is just amazing to me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Miguel Gomez Ibanez, outgoing president of the North Bennett Street School, and Sarah Turner, his successor, new president. We're discussing Miguel's tenure and Sarah's leadership in the context of rising interest in trade schools. So what is the profile of uh, the student that comes to North Bennett School or finds his or her way here? 
Happily, there's a really, really broad profile. So we've got folks who are, in some cases, coming right out of high school and opting to do a trades education instead of going to a four-year college. We've also got people who have had, like Miguel had, a significant and fulfilling career, but then wanted to make a change. So folks who have had a professional life and are now kind of taking a new look at what they want to do and changing the changing the focus for themselves. We've got people... Um, who are veterans. We have about 20% of our student population are veterans. And um, I think this is really to Miguel's credit to have um, built this community of students here. And it turns out that a lot of the aptitudes that people are learning in the services work well in the trades. There's teamwork, there's problem solving, there's kind of a stick to itness um, about it. And it, it turns out that there's a really good fit between some folks who are coming out of the service and then starting their lives as civilians who are studying with us. So it's really everybody. It's young, it's old, it's experienced, it's novice. It's, it's a wonderful mix. I think another thing to be said is that people here they want to be here. They're here because they know they want to be here, and they're they're sort of uh, driven. And you walk around the school, and you see people doing what they really want to be doing. And that's not the case in just any educational uh, institution, I think. Yeah, so, so many times people feel like, okay, well, I graduated from high school, and everybody told me I should go to college, so I guess I'm going. Um, which is why I think gap years are being you know pushed more, really, to let people think do I really want to do this? What do I really want to do? Let me let me have a moment outside to think about it. Um, I want to just rest a, a little bit about on the on the older students because we're seeing in mo in colleges, not just traditional four year colleges, community colleges certainly have always been an attraction for older students. But I hear you saying that's definitely happening here as well. Yes, I think the uh, age uh, is kind of de declining a little bit, but still the average age is thirty years old. So, you know, what I was saying about people really want to be here, it takes a certain amount of experience in the world to know that you want to be here. And the, the people who come straight out of high school are uh, uh, the exception because it's not everyone at that age who really knows what they want to do. So talk to me about graduates. Um, give me some stories about recent or even long ago graduates and where they are and what they're doing and how North Bennett factored into where they are today. Well, what, yeah, Sarah and I are looking at each other because we're both <laughs> eager to answer all these questions. I mean, we have, we're doing really well getting along with, with the, the coming and the going of presidents. Uh, what I want uh, to say is that we have graduates embedded in almost every uh, cultural institution in this town. We have uh, bookbinders in Harvard University and Boston College and the Boston Athenaeum. We have piano technicians at all the schools and the Boston Public Schools. So we're really, a lot of our graduates are in this town and working. It's just that nobody really understands that. Mm. And I think so many of the North Bennett graduates kind of do the behind the scenes work. They do the quiet work. So as Miguel mentioned, people working on conservation at the Harvard libraries or um, at the Boston Public Library. It's an interesting story that was one of the North Bennett graduates who was a conservator at the Boston Public Library who actually found the Durer and the Rembrandt prints that had gone missing. Oh, so right. someone yeah. kind of quietly working behind the scenes and finding that they were shelved, you know, just a few feet away from where they thought they were going to be. So when I think about the graduates from North Bennett, I think about them really enabling the cultural life that we all really love in this city. So tuning at Tanglewood, helping to support the Boston Symphony Orchestra in their summer home. I think about um, jewelers um, from North Bennett who are working at Tiffany's, just a, a flagship store in jewelry. Um, 
people who are working in violin shops, people who are working in their own shops, starting their own businesses. And it's a, it's a quiet workforce. It's not, um, it's not, it doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. It's not necessarily announcing itself. And yet it's, it's really the works behind the cultural life that so many of us enjoy in this city and around the country. Um, what's the future? Um, because education, traditional college education, let me start there, is going through a lot of change now. I don't even know if reform is the word. I mean, it's being wholesale rethought um, as a methodology for uh, shaping young young people primarily. But again, as I just said earlier, there are older students uh, coming to college as well. So all of that's being rethought almost from the ground up at even the successful schools. What do you see happening here? Do you stay the course? Are there some things you've learned, Miguel, since in the 12 years that you now know must be a part of this? Well, I think one thing to be said is that we have uh, very few uh, competing uh, schools. There are not a lot of places where you can learn to do the things we, we do. And so we're somewhat uh, immune, I think, to some of the stresses of Mount Ida or now Hampshire College. Uh, even today, I think the, the uh, State Board of Education is, is meeting to see what are we going to do about the economic pressures that a lot of small liberal arts colleges in. So I think what I'm uh, handing off to Sarah is, some, is, a, is a school that is, is okay, that you know, we're, not, we're not in trouble, we're, we're not worried about the future, but the future direction is up to her. Mm -hmm. Sarah? And I would say that Miguel's right. I'm, uh, the school's really on a terrific platform right now. So some of the accomplishments that um, he may be too modest to mention are, are this building. So where we're sitting, um, the physical plant of the, of the school is remarkable. The shops are remarkable, the facilities. It's really an incredible platform for learning. And it's finally the, the first time in the school's history that all of the programs have been together under one roof. So that makes for a really exciting synergy rather than having programs kind of out on satellite stations. And the other thing that I think is really important is the school has just completed a scholarship endowment campaign. So it's raised $20 million to put towards student scholarship. And so that to me is really very, very directly addressing issues of cost of education, which are you know real issues all over this country, making an education affordable, and that helps us be able to attract the people who want to be here, the people who have the aptitude to be here, really the best students. So it's that platform that I've been given to take forward. And some of the things as I look to the future are building on the work that's been done. Miguel mentioned at the outset, really starting relationships within the city of Boston. And I think there are new partners to, to meet, new partners to work with and extend the way North Bennett can help serve the community. I think there are new students, staff, and faculty to attract. I think North North Bennett now is going to wrestle with becoming a more diverse and more inclusive community, and that's work that I really look forward to doing. I know it's work that the staff and the faculty want to do with me. So I think in many ways, we North Bennett has such rich resources um, intellectually, creatively, um, technically, and, and our job now is to share that with more people. What's the relative cost of, let's say, your average four-year college in Greater Boston and, uh, and education at North Bennett? If you if you take into let's assume that the tuition is forty thousand dollars or something like that times four years, that's a hundred sixty thousand dollars without any living expenses, and you can uh, get a degree here w with one year and twenty five thousand dollars. So, it, the cost difference mm -hmm. is huge. Mm -hmm. And again, just back to people waiting um, with jobs at. at for these students. Um, I'm aware of that. Many I, of our programs, mm -hmm. uh, the students who leave here are already employed. It's 
particularly true with carpentry and locksmithing. These are trades that are needed right here in Boston, and people go back to the neighborhoods where they came, and they've got a job. And I was wondering, you know, the Boston is doing such a blowout expansion of building. So that some of your graduates or your or even maybe students still in progress must have gotten work or apprenticeships because of that. That's right. And then mm-hmm. I'm also learning, um, being new to Boston, I'm still learning about the city, but there's um, a number of casinos that are going to be opening in the city That's and correct. casinos need locksmiths. And so lo and behold, I find out that this is a really terrific market for our locksmithing graduates um, to walk into that, um, to walk into that need. So um, it's true. One of the things that's different for me is working for an accredited trade school. We're obliged to keep our employment rates up. We're obliged by our creditors to make sure that we can maintain at least 70% employment for our graduates. And as Miguel said, some of the programs maintain a much higher percentage even so that folks are literally walking out the door into jobs in their field. And I love that. That has such integrity as a place to be leading to know that the return on investment is real and it's quick. So Miguel, last words from you in terms of looking back over these 12 years and um, and your hopes for the future for North Bennett? Well, my hopes for the future are, are, are that it continues to be a great school. And looking backward, I think it's just been an extraordinary community. To be in a, in a building with 160 students and 30 faculty and just spend the day with people that are working, uh, building violins and, and making pianos and building houses, I mean, it's, it's just a lovely community of makers. And Sarah, as you look forward, make the case for trade school education. Sure. I think the case that I would make is to really think about how you can make a contribution to your community that's tangible, that's real. So many people want to do that. And I think the trades is an excellent way to do that. It touches buildings. It touches people personally through jewelry, through locksmithing. It touches creative life through violin and piano. So there's a whole suite of ways that people can make an actual difference in their community through this education and, and make a living doing it. And I think that's really meaningful. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Miguel Gomez Ibanez is the outgoing president of the North Bennett Street School. He oversaw the school from 2006 until December of 2018. Sarah Turner is the newest president of the North Bennett Street School. Her tenure began in December 2018. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Mm-hmm.